Good morning. We'll have reason to bless the glorious name of the Lord as we continue in our study of 1 Timothy. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. What we refer to um, as 1 Timothy is really a letter written from the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son and co-worker Timothy. Timothy was young but faithful to the Lord. Many lessons to learn. We have been realizing, we've been um, studying in the past weeks that uh, there was a problem in the church at Ephesus. There were false teachers who sought to bring the uh, children of the Lord back into bondage of, uh, of the law as a, a, a way to gain entrance into heaven. And uh, these uh, Judaizers sought to undermine not just Paul's ministry, but um, the gospel itself. They sought to um, turn people away from the Lord to their false teaching. So um, the other thing uh, that Luke brought out last week was that um, there's a warfare. And uh, Paul exhorted Timothy to wage a good warfare. In a nutshell, what Paul is writing to Timothy is an instruction manual for conduct in the church. We uh, see that in uh, 3.15, and um, he tells Timothy in 4.6 that he is to instruct the brethren in, these, um, in this conduct. So we have a vital letter, a vital instruction on conduct in the church. Today, we're going to look at prayer, the, um, the necessity of prayer. So we'll start in um, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for us all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, therefore, that the men everywhere lifting up holy hands, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. We're going to look at this passage in three main headings, the apostles' exhortation to pray and the Lord's attentiveness to prayer. God's desire for all mankind and his provision to fulfill his desire. And then briefly, we'll look at the importance of Paul's authority and uh, his exhortation restated. Paul starts this section with the word therefore. It throws us back to what he's already communicated to Timothy in the letter, the warning about the false teachers 
the command to wage a good warfare. We are in a warfare. It's easy to be distracted from that, to be lulled into a sense of false security. We live naively if we can't anticipate evils befalling us from the enemy. Are you a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? Paul wants us to be prayer warriors in the warfare. How are we to pray? Paul says that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Supplication is a want or a need. It, um, it stresses the, the lack that we have. Our, our best prayers are born of inward necessity. And this has the thought of a strong pleading to the Lord. Paul's term in the original for prayer is a very general term. It encompasses uh, many aspects of prayer. Intercession is seeking the presence and hearing of God on behalf of others. I'm, uh, I'm pouring out uh, requests for other people. And then uh, giving of thanks, of course, is the overflowing gratitude for the Lord for his grace and kindness. Paul prayed. Paul left us lots of examples in his writings of uh, prayers that he prayed for the saints. Let's look at a couple. Uh, the letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. We can enter into Paul's prayer life as we, um, as we follow along with this. For this reason, uh, Colossians 1.9, for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, <clears throat> that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Would you like Paul to be praying that for you? Was there supplication? Yes. Was there intercession? Yes. Was there giving of thanks? Yes. Paul seems to cover all the bases in one prayer. Let's look um, also at his um, prayer for the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. And verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. Paul was thanking the Lord for the saints. They weren't perfect but they, uh, they were saints. They were, 
the Lord's. And it was characteristic of Paul that he would begin an epistle with, uh, with thanksgiving for the saints. He loved the saints and he appreciated them and he took that opportunity to thank them. Do you thank the Lord for the saints? Is that a part of your prayer life that you, um, that you really express appreciation to the Lord for the saints here at Calvary Bible Chapel? It's important. That's how we're to pray. For whom are we to pray? Back to, uh, back to 1 Timothy. We're to pray for all men. The word there for men includes women and children. It's like mankind. We're to pray for all mankind. Who are the ones, uh, mankind, the saints. We showed that Paul's uh, burden was, uh, was for the saints of God in, uh, di in different churches. We pray also for the unsaved. We, um, we should pray for open doors for the gospel. Again in Colossians 4.3, meanwhile praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I'm also in chains. So Paul uh, includes the, um, the unsaved in all, uh, all men, and uh, he's, uh, he's looking for open doors of opportunity for the gospel in his neighborhood, in his workplace, at the chapel, uh, even in homes we can look for uh, for these open doors. Not just for open doors, but also for open hearts to receive the gospel. We remember Lydia, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul, Acts 16, 14. So as we pray for the unsaved, we ask for open doors and open hearts to receive the Lord's word. The saints, the unsaved, were also to pray for our enemies. The Lord Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use, and use you and persecute you. Do you have enemies? In praying for all men, we have the, the saints, we have the unsaved, and we have uh, the extreme case of our enemies. And you fit in the others in between as you see fit. Paul says, pray for all men. I believe it was uh, General William Booth of the Salvation Army who said, go for souls, go for the worst. And as we, uh, as we pray, we should have uh, on our prayer list the worst for whom we... Uh, we strive uh, for the gospel. So it's for all men that we pray. It's for kings as well, not just our own president, but heads of other countries. There are um, countries today who barely have rulers. <clears throat> the country is so, um, so disorganized that um, uh, we should be praying for order 
I would have found it difficult to pray for Nero, W. Ross Rainey said in a Choice Gleanings devotional. Remember, Nero was emperor at the time that Paul wrote this letter. Nero savagely, brutally persecuted the Christians. Even as today I find it difficult to pray for those in authority who are godless and enemies of the cross of Christ. We may feel that our prayers are ineffective on behalf of such, especially that they might place their faith in Christ. However, as J. Sidlow Baxter once said, men may spurn our appeal, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. Remember, there is power in prayer to change people and things. We are to pray not just for all men, but for kings and for all in authority. Bill McDonald comments, Christians should not engage in revolution or violence against any government, but any laws that are contrary to the word of God, he may quietly refuse and submissively bear the penalty. We should not depend on the government. The events of this past week sound a warning call to you uh, if you do. Do not depend on the federal government especially uh, and it's a great tendency for us to, to do so. The government will fail us. The government will disappoint us. We should pray as if the government depends on us because indeed it does. That's how we're to pray. That's for whom we're to pray. For what are we to pray? Paul tells us we are to pray that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For what are we praying for these national and state and local politicians to lead a quiet and peaceable life? What Paul is exhorting us to do here is not to pray that we might live in a perpetual retirement where, uh, or on a cruise ship where the meals are, are brought to us uh, four times a day and uh, we're leave, leading a, a life of, uh, of luxury. Rather, he asks that we pray for a quiet and peaceable life where it's uh, conducive to godliness. We can live for the Lord, one that allows for tireless proclamation of his gospel, one that allows us to wage warfare on the spiritual front. We're not distracted by the, uh, the cares, physical cares. Is God committed to hearing these prayers? Paul seems to answer in, in verse 3, he says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of the Lord. There are three, at least three, people or groups of people that we might um, seek acceptability. In their sight, we, we're looking for acceptability. One is myself. Who was it who said, to thine own self be true? Um, but uh, the writer of Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to a man, and the end thereof are the ways of death. Uh, my, uh, my boat is a lousy... Um, place to throw my anchor, it, uh, I would, uh, I'd be set adrift, and I'm a, a bad 
evaluator of my own spiritual effectiveness. We could look to others, but then we'd be like the Pharisees, um, praying to be seen, praying in the open market. They would be um, um, looking for the approval of men, men pleasers. Paul wrote in Galatians 1, he said, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So it's not to others that we look for approval. It's to the Lord. Each of us shall give account to him should we not strive to please him. What is it that motivates your prayer life? Is it uh, personal gain? Pleasure? Comfort? Is it the esteem of my brothers and sisters in the Lord that I appear to be a praying person? Or do I seek the pleasure and glory of the Lord? Here's a, here's a diagnostic question for you. What are you doing in your life simply because the Lord Jesus told you to? What are you doing in your life simply because Jesus told you to, to do that? Our prayers should be molded then by God's desire for men and women. What is God's heart desire for men and women? Paul tells us, he says um, in verse 4, he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Saved. Good word. Good old-fashioned word. Be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the penalty of sin. Job wrote in uh, uh, 3327, he said, I have sinned and I have perverted that which is true and it has not profited me. He perverted that which was right. And uh, in perverting what is right, we bear the guilt, we bear the penalty for that. God wants to save us from the penalty of uh, our perversion of what is right. The wages of sin is death. The consequence of our crimes, the penalty for our crimes is, is death. Physical death, spiritual death, the second death. God wants to save us not just from the penalty, but also from the power of sin. Paul wrote, he said, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Paul knew the power of sin. God would like to save us from that and from the very presence of sin. Sin was always before King David. He said, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I can't run fast enough to get rid of it. God's desire is for all to be saved. How intense is that desire? How can we measure the desire of God? Is that really, um, is that really something to be reckoned with? If you are rejecting the Lord's salvation, 
you have stubbornly resisted his invitation to follow him, to have eternal life, I have a question for you. Who is praying for you? Who is praying for you? Godly parents beg the Lord for the sensibility and safety of their teenage son. His life is made there as a living hell. Not because he's selfish or arrogant or disrespectful, though that's bad enough. Not because his behavior exposes him to STDs, to hepatitis from needle use, to accidental deaths from alcohol abuse. What breaks their heart is that his sins are dragging him into uh, an eternity of torment in hell. They water their prayers with their tears. Do you think that the Lord is insensitive to a parent's tears? Think he is blind to that? I think there's a special power in in the tears of a grandparent or a parent. Who's praying for you? In a household across town, a man lives respectably. He's successful in business, he's involved in the community, but he's careless about his soul. He's disinterested in the things of the Lord. And so his wife lifts up prayer for him continually, day and night. She yearns for his eyes to be open to reality, to his personal need. It's a crushing burden that she carries with her continually. She's tormented by thoughts of his crying out in hell for relief. Is the Lord deaf to your wife's prayer? Who's praying for you? Would you bring down your parents' gray hair with sorrow to the grave? Would you break your wife's heart for a few moments of seeming independence in this short span of life on earth? Through these illustrations, we sense in a very small way the desire that God has for the salvation of the lost. God alone knows the horrors of hell. Only he knows the fullness of pleasure at his right hand. Why do you delay your coming to him? He spoke through the prophet Ezekiel, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Turn and live. Any desire, even on God's part, without a plan, is just a wish. God has made provision for this, for his desire. What provision has he made? You who are lost and condemned are also hopeless and helpless to save yourself. We, we know that from verses like uh, Isaiah 59 too. Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. 
God's justice demands full payment for your sin. Job expressed his helplessness in this way. He, that is God, is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Imagine being in a foreign country, jailed for a crime. They close the prison doors. You don't speak the language. They don't speak English. Every effort that you make to try to get a lawyer, they just uh, take you further back in the dungeon, away from sunlight, away from the possibility of freedom, away from, from relief. Imagine being stuck in a, in a place without a lawyer, without a mediator, without someone who can help, someone who can represent you to the authorities. Where is the mediator? Who can satisfy God's demands and the needs of sinners? The demands of the law and the need for grace. There wasn't a mediator, but there now is. There is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. We see Christ's mediation in verses like John 14, 6. I am the way the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There may be many roads to Jesus, but there's only one way to the Father, and that is through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You complain that there's only one way. Thank God there is a way. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive, but made alive by the Spirit. As mediator, Christ does something I cannot do. He brings me to God. I'm not able to come to God. He brings me to God as, uh, as a mediator. How did Jesus achieve this mediation between an offended judge and the offending criminal? He did so by taking the criminal's punishment on himself. He gave himself a ransom for us all. He was lifted up on a Roman cross between earth and sky, hated of men and of God too forsaken. Christ provided a ransom for us all. God desires all to be saved. Not one sinner has been excluded from his provision on the cross of Calvary. Christ's substitutionary work, his um, standing in your place and mine on the cross is sufficient to save, but effective only if you receive it, only if you put your trust in him. Only as you forsake all others and believe that his work alone can save you 
You can sing as you do that with, uh, with other ransom ones. Now I can say I'm pardoned, happy and justified, free, saved by my blessed Redeemer. This is the Savior for me, Savior of sinners, Savior of sinners like me, shedding his blood for my ransom. Christ is the Savior for me. Saved from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin, saved ultimately from the very presence of sin. Paul says um, at the end of verse 6, to be testified in due time. He's talking about the message of the Lord Jesus, of his uh, availability as a mediator. It, um, it underscores the importance of this message. It's a message God intends to be proclaimed in due time now. Now is due time. It shows God's desire to bless all mankind. We should pray for its proclamation. Pray for those open doors. Pray for open hearts. Paul asked prayer of the Thessalonians. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of God may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Paul shifts to his, um, his authority, defense of his authority in verse 7. He says, um, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. If Paul was not an apostle sent by the Lord, then his message was not from the Lord. And that's what the false teachers sought to, to do. They sought to discredit Paul and to discredit the Lord's message. His word, Paul's word, would have been no more authoritative than, the, than that of the false teachers who sought to contradict and confuse the gospel. I believe this is why Paul so fiercely defended his apostleship, not for personal reasons, but for the Lord. He spoke the truth and didn't lie. Remember, Timothy is a spiritual son. Imagine you sitting down with your father and him saying, son, daughter, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. What power that would have in your life. My dad is telling me something very important here. And it's not just important, but it seems like there are people who are seeking to undermine his, uh, what he's telling me. And I, I believe this is the force of Paul's statement. I'm telling the truth, Timothy. I'm not lying. Then finally, in verse 8, Paul restates his exhortation. He expresses it as a desire. He desires that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without doubt and uh, without wrath and, and doubting. Who should lead public prayer? The word here is uh, different. The word for men. Uh, this word in the original is um, as um, in contrast to women. The first time, remember, uh, God desired all men to be saved. It was uh, for mankind, for men and women. 
Hear the men. There are three qualifications that Paul gives for one who would lead in prayer, in public prayer. He says, um, lifting up holy hands. Bill McDonald in his commentary says, it's not so much the posture Paul is, uh, is requiring as much as in, uh, the holy hands, the inward purity. Hands being figurative of a man's life, of his manner of living without wrath. It excludes that brother who is given to bouts of anger, bouts of rage. We don't want uh, one um, who is so out of control uh, representing us to the Lord. And then finally, without doubting, this man offers prayer according to his confidence in the Lord's ability to answer. He doesn't ask more than his faith can support, his faith will receive. In summary, this man should exhibit holiness and purity selfward, love and peace manward, unquestioning faith Godward. In conclusion, the apostle exhorted Timothy to pray. Timothy, pray. He exhorted Timothy to instruct the believers in Ephesus. Timothy, teach them to pray. Because of the authority of God's word, 2,000 years later, we hear Paul exhorting believers at 32701 Falcon Drive, Fremont, California, believers Pray. Prayer brings us into harmony with God's desires. Prayer forwards God's interests on the earth. Prayer opens doors of opportunity in our, our lives for the proclamation of his gospel. Prayer opens hearts to receive his truth, the gospel of our salvation. Christ himself, the mediator who gave himself a ransom for us. Let's pray. How much would our lives change, Lord, if we prayed as um, Paul has instructed us to pray, as you have instructed us? We want to be different, Lord. If we're different this week, we pray that we might be so in prayer. Encourage us with results as uh, we pray for all men, for kings, for those in authority. We are in desperate times and uh, yet uh, great days of opportunity as we talk with, um, with our family and neighbors. We pray we might have a sense of your desire uh, as we pray. We pray that uh, we might have a deep appreciation for our mediator, our Lord Jesus, that might uh, compel us, his love might compel us to, uh, to live for you. We pray in his name, amen.